0: welcome to the fifth war films podcast a podcast where we're talking about 10 classic war films we did this a series like this before called the adventure films podcast where we talked about 10 classic adventure films but now our theme is war and today we're going to be talking about the 1964 film it happened here I'm Garen Ewing. I'm a comic artist and writer and illustrator, and I'm doing these podcasts with my brother Murray.
1: Hello, I'm Murray. Um, I'm a writer. I've got a book out at the moment called The Fantasy Reader.
0: So the last film we did was A Bridge Too Far, which we recorded in February 2015, and I actually finally got round to editing in December 2015, (laughs) so there's been a bit of a gap, but there's no schedule for these. So now it's uh, January 2016, Happy New Year. And should we get straight into the film? Yeah. This is one that I think perhaps a lot of people might not have heard of before. Yeah,
1: I certainly think it's the most unusual one you've picked for the ten films. Yes. I hadn't heard of it before.
0: <laughs> I'm very enthusiastic about this film. I'm a big fan. But the only reason I heard of it and got introduced to it is through my interest in Charlie Chaplin.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, where I used to run a, a website called Chaplin UK in the late 90s. And early two thousands, well, by the early two thousands, it became the website for the official British Chaplain Society. Actually, it wasn't British; it was just the Chaplain Society. I think it was international. And Kevin Brownlow, who directed it, happened here, was one of the uh, sort of patrons of the Chaplain Society. I went to quite a, a few silent film events at the BFI in London, and so this is the only director of these films who I've actually met.
1: Oh, right. Um,
0: wow. I met him twice.
1: Now, I, it's because of that, I've, I'm used to seeing his name on books on your bookshelves, so yes. I thought of him basically as a scholar of silent films and old films. Yes. Is that, I mean, is this the only film he directed? He did... Documentaries, probably.
0: Yes, yeah. he did. He He made basically two main films. He worked on others, and I think he made a very small film before it happened here. But he did become his main life's work has become a, a restorer of films mm. and a film, film historian, particularly about the silent era. And, and that was the thing that got me interested in Kevin Brownlow, was I read a book of his called The Parades has Gone By, mm. which is from 1968, an excellent book about the silent film period. He in, went and interviewed a lot of the silent film stars who were just about still living in the oh, 60s. right. right. And that book was the culmination of those interviews. You know, a few years later, many of them had died. Wow. Uh, When he was a young boy, he got interested in film and Mm. became a bit of a film collector. I mean, I'm talking about, you know, age sort of 12, 13, 14. (laughs) Right. And he discovered, Mm. he picked up bits of old film from flea markets that no one was interested in then. You know, it's not like today with eBay and everyone's (sighs) a collector.
1: Yeah.
0: And he found a fragment of a film called Napoleon. He later discovered it was Napoleon. In fact, he swapped it for something else. But anyway, that's a long story. That's a different, a different story. <laughs> but um, so he came, he came into possession of a scrap of a film called Napoleon, and Napoleon kind of became his life's work. He restored the film. It was a really sort of avant-garde, amazing film by a director called Abel Gantz. In fact, I saw it in 2013. It's you can't see it on TV or. You can buy it on DVD, but you you must never watch it on the small screen. It's a big screen film. (laughs) I went to see it at the um, Festival Hall. It was five and a half hours long with a live music score by Carl Davis. He did a lot of restoration. A lot of his restored films had music by Carl Davis. It was amazing.
1: Yeah.
0: But only amazing, I think. I think if you saw it on the small screen, you probably wouldn't be impressed. But it, it is very impressive, especially with live Orchestra. So he wrote another book about Napoleon, which is, I recommend all his books. The Parade's Gone By, Um, his book about restoring Napoleon, which is, you know, a book that covers a lot of his life. And he also wrote a book called How It Happened Here, which is a book about the making of this film. This film, yeah. Right. Um, So Kevin Brown, you know, I went to a talk about Napoleon as well. That was the last time I saw him.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, And he's a very quiet, unassuming, I guess shy. <laughs> as it comes across as shy anyway um, and you think well how because he made it it happened here when he was 18 yeah took him eight years to make um, oh, I
1: saw that apparently at one point in the Guinness Book of Records it was listed, maybe still is, as the longest production schedule of any film.
0: Oh, right, right, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it took 40 days to shoot, Yeah. but those 40 days were spread over eight years. <laughs> because he was 18, his assistant director, Andrew Mollo, was 16. Mm. And when you see the film, it's amazing what they did. Yeah. With no budget, pretty much. A couple of kids, basically. But uh, again, as, as I was saying, Kevin Brownlow's such a quiet, unassuming person. Yeah yet to get things done he really if he wanted to do something he went and did it his enthusiasm kind of overrode his character (laughs) if you like that's what it seems anyway so he would get people in the street in pubs and he'd ask go to the local school to try and get people to muck in
1: yeah this is a film made with no professional actors is that right?
0: well not no there were a couple in fact there's a couple of interesting actors in it which we'll we'll talk about so (laughs) The origin of this, Kevin Brownlow was working as a sort of assistant gopher for a film production company. Um, <laughs> in assistant late-
1: gopher sounds like yeah. the lowest of the yeah. low. <laughs> well,
0: he, assistant stroke <laughs> gopher. <Yeah>. Oh, right. <laughs> um, But his main job was just taking cans of film to other offices right. and things like that. But, of course, he was picking up. He wanted to be a director. That right. was his ambition.
1: Right.
0: And the idea came when he was walking along and he saw a black car stop outside a shop Mm. And a guy got out, ran to the shop and just as he was about to go into the shop, he turned back to the car and shouted something in German
1: yeah.
0: and then went in. And that got him thinking, of, what if the Germans had won the war
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, or had taken over Britain? Yeah, That was the German idea. And that's what this plot is, basically. We haven't said that yet. <laughs> um, the basic idea is Britain in the 1940s has been invaded successfully by the Nazis yeah. and is under their occupation.
1: I think the, the very beginning of the film, they actually think is it Dunkirk landing goes wrong, and then the Nazis invade. Yeah.
0: Well, it did. Well, no, Dunkirk was the evacuation. Um, oh, right. You might you getting that mixed up with D Day. Dunkirk is the evacuation, hmm. and there was an actual German operation called Operation Sea Lion, which oh. was Hitler's invasion right. of Britain plan, which never actually happened. It was starting to get set to go in. Oh, right. 1940, but it got postponed. You know, it wasn't the first thing he wanted to do was win the Battle of Britain, win air superiority. Yeah. Of course, that didn't happen, yes. and then <sighs> other things. So it was postponed in September 1940. Yeah, in it happened here. It's June 1940. Operation Sea Lion has
1: yeah.
0: um, been successful.
1: Yes, and one thing that happens then is, of course, the German occupation of England, and they say that because of war action in the Urals, most of the German forces removed from England, leaving England in the charge of native but German controlled forces, which I think is a key point about this because it's not about, although it is about an occupation, it's really about the internal struggles of the country, which is occupied. So it's about collaboration and resistance rather than being all the English being on the English side yes
0: yeah Yeah. and that's a key point and Mm. it's probably one of the most fascinating things about this film is that aspect Um, I should just quickly say I didn't say at the beginning there will be spoilers we're going to talk about every aspect of this film the plot and everything so if you want to see it for the first time without spoilers just uh, pause this podcast go out and find a copy watch it and then come back to us yeah you know Kevin Brownlow was born in Crowborough (laughs) right uh, which is only 14 miles from us yeah there's a a Sussex Lad and I want to say something else I really liked about him he did a TV series which was made in 1980 but I think I saw it repeated called Hollywood
1: mm.
0: and it, again it's, if you're not sure about silent films you th- a lot of people probably think they're a bit boring you know, silent blah 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 it is they're absolutely fascinating actually and there's many many amazing silent films and if you can see Hollywood I think actually someone's put it on YouTube not the nicest way to see it but uh, it's a fascinating series as well and he made another one called Unknown Chaplin, which is he he got together all Chaplin's outtakes and put them oh, together. Right? It's narrated by James Mason. Yeah. Um, a fascinating stuff. And also he got documentaries on video about Buster Keaton, Harold Lloyd and D.W. Griffith. Oh, all right. worth right. seeking out. Anyway, back to It Happened Here.
1: The action actually starts in the West Country of England. Yes. Uh, and what's happened is that America has finally come into the war, they say. Yeah, <laughs> Um, has got forces in Ireland and are supplying the resistance on the west side of England.
0: That's right. They're doing bombing raids and also troops, a few Mm. troops are landing to help the partisans.
1: So what the uh, occupying forces have done is said that certain areas which which have got a lot of resistance elements in them, they're evacuating and there's a deadline date whereby anyone not in a German army uniform will be shot on sight. Yes. So this is the way that they're going to get the resistance. They're going to clear out everyone but yeah. the resistance and the army.
0: Yes. Uh, this is a great opening of the film. It is is a lovely English village. Mm. And along comes uh, a British bobby on a bicycle. And then as he cycles by, he cycles by a panzer tank with Germans <laughs> around it, who are just sort of yeah. hanging around it, inspecting the tank. And yeah. it's that juxtaposition of yeah. very British... Life, the policeman in his British uniform, and the Nazis. Yeah. Um, which, of course, we have seen, if you've seen photos of the occupation of the Channel Islands.
1: Oh, uh, right, The only yeah. bit
0: of Great Britain yes. to be occupied by the Germans in the Second World War.
1: Yeah.
0: And Brownlow and Mollo, they were the co-directors of the film, reference pictures from that and also have occupied Paris. Oh, uh, right. I think the thing, the most shocking thing, or the most, the initial surprising thing about this film is its veracity. It just looks so real. Yes. (laughs) Every scene looks like it could be from newsreel footage Mm. of an occupying German force. Yeah. That's partly thanks to the amateurishness of it. Yes, yeah. It's shot in black and white. It was shot on a variety of different cameras as they could get hold of them. Um, Different stock. The sound was a bit of a hodgepodge done here and there oh,
1: and right.
0: over eight years of course when they had to do the dubbing some actors had died some some oh, had right. moved away some they couldn't find others uh, Kevin Barron said the leading lady who was played by Pauline Jobson uh, Pauline Murray was uh, her character's name her you know, character's name well that's yeah. actually her real name her maiden name oh right because well we'll get to her in a minute yeah. um, but just you know she in one edit she aged uh, five years oh. There was one scene when she did when she was, you know, 38 and the next one yeah. she was you know, 42 or something. Yeah, I didn't particularly notice that. Really. No, I, I didn't yeah. notice it either, but again, yeah. Brownlow mentioned it. And obviously, I mean, that's the kind of period when you think about that, that, it took eight years.
1: Yeah. So it is worth saying that past the style of this film, in contrast to the other films we've been talking about, which have been pure stories from to finish, this has got a lot of what you might call mock documentary footage, like newsreels. Yeah. And some just scenes of... There's a lot of scenes of, as you say, German uniforms in London, for instance. There's a long sequence of various things, which we'll probably come to later. But um,
0: Kevin Brownlow met up with Andrew Mollo, who was 16. And the the way they met each other was Kevin was looking for... Kevin. (laughs) (laughs) Mr Brownlow. Yes, Mr Brownlow. (laughs) Was, I think, in Portobello Road in the market, Mm. looking for... German uniforms, bits and pieces. And he said to the storeholder, you, know, you know, anyone? he said, Oh, I think there's a collector. And it turned out to be Andrew Mollo, whose yeah. whole family were military collectors. Like, I think his, his dad was Russian, his mother was English, I think. And they all collected different things. Some of them collected Russian stuff, British stuff. He collected German Nazi stuff. Yeah. Uh, Kevin Brown went into his room and there was a bust of Hitler. And you know, he was a bit worried <laughs> at first that he was. Some sort of closet or, or not so closet fascist. Yeah, uh, turned out he wasn't. He was a genuine collector. But he looked at Kevin Brownlow's rushes that he'd shot already and said, mm-hmm. "That's all wrong. Well, the uniforms are wrong. It's wrong, wrong, wrong." Okay. And he brought to it authenticity right. of um, you know all the vehicles, the uniforms. He loaned some of his collection, but they also went to Paris and bought stuff there. Oh, source stuff. <laughs> they they put an advert in a cinema magazine and people sent them helmets and yeah. things. This was, what? Well, 58, isn't it? That's yeah. So 15 12 to 15 years after the that's one of the things Second World War. That, uh,
1: watching this, sitting there watching it, part of my mind is thinking about the making of it. Yeah. And thinking you really had to have a nerve to walk down an English <laughs> street yes. in a German uniform. Yeah. Yeah. Let alone like <laughs> The scenes of a marching band in German uniform, you thought... And in London?
0: Yeah. I mean, he filmed in Trafalgar Square. He filmed in front of, you yeah, know, the Block mm. Tower, Big Ben and all that. Because there'd be a lot of
1: people who would re- be really emotive about this. One thing that I thought of, I saw recently, was a, a, a drama about the making of the comedy Dad's Army. <laughs> right. Which was in the 60s. Yeah. And originally they had a title sequence which was stock footage of Nazis walking along. And he said that the people who saw it just were so sort of, not traumatised, but they threw them completely from the comedy that followed. They just didn't appreciate it. They thought, you know, it was basically too close. Yeah, You know, they thought, oh, I don't want to see any Nazis. And of course some of the actors as well were quite shocked just by the sight of um, memories of the war being brought back. Yeah,
0: yeah. Kevin Brownlow actually had ex-German soldiers in his cast. Right. Because some of them had been prisoners of war and stayed in England or had moved to England. A number of the actors in German uniforms were ex-soldiers. One of them, at least, even an ex-SS officer. That doesn't mean they had Nazi sympathies now. Um, But they spoke German in the film, and that's absolutely authentic. There was one point when they were filming in London, and there was a tour of veterans of a German parachute unit, and they saw the filming and couldn't believe it, and they followed the unit around for the rest of the day as part of their, their tour became following around these sort of German soldiers. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but they were amazed about how authentic it was. Mm. And the authenticity is a big part of the film mm. as well. It, as we say, it just looked like footage.
1: And considering of... he had no budget, basically. Yeah. I mean, was two kids. Volunteers,
0: everyone's volunteers... <laughs> yeah.
1: But just getting the uniforms. I mean, I suppose they wouldn't have been worth a lot then.
0: No, but, no, um, that's the thing. They were, And they were not in plentiful supply. He had to yeah. hunt around for them. But there was one point when Andrew Molo went down to the south of France and said, I've, you know, I've got hundreds of uniforms here. Oh, right. <laughs> um, and they bought things in Paris and, as I say, from collectors. But the other thing he did... Uh, Kevin Brownlow, was he'd make sure the faces were right for the characters. Oh, really? And there is one thing, I think, he thought, yeah, you look like a German soldier. Yes, yeah. You look like a refugee. You look like a partisan. And even there's a scene where he films a World War I bit, and he wanted the yeah. faces to be sort of that era. Yeah. And it's true, they look like it. I mean, <laughs> there was one point where he was told, uh, this was later in the sort of 90s, I think, yeah. he'd heard that, a pro-Nazi propaganda film had been discovered within the collection of some German chap, yeah, who, yeah. who I, I don't know who he was, by some Italians. And they had made a documentary and included this footage. And Kevin Brownlow was intrigued. Um, it's, oh, it was said to include some scenes of Germans soldiers in Britain. <laughs> so they sent it to him and said this is all authentic footage. And he ended up seeing scenes from his own film. (laughs) The Italians had included bits of It Happened Here, or somehow that got into this film, this propaganda film. They thought it was real. Wow. They thought it was actual Germans in London. Uh, and actually it was his film and he said, oh, would you mind paying me for that and they just refused and didn't even apologise or anything oh dear. <laughs> a typical story of Kevin Brownlow's luck uh, where he doesn't seem but to in,
1: in a way, I hope he took it as a compliment as well <laughs> yeah,
0: I think he. I saw him tell that story at a, on a talk which is on a video actually on YouTube and he includes that and he, he I think there's a slight bit of pride there
1: yeah.
0: and that's one of the great things about the film mm. but it came from its amateurishness yeah. The other thing we should talk about is the acting because ninety mm. nine percent of the actors are amateurs, are friends, or people he got from, mm. you know, dragged out of pubs near where mm. they were filming. And it's yeah, there's some not so good acting in it. Actually, I don't think there are, there are, there's no bits that I think are terrible because it's real people talking, yeah, yeah. so you get that lovely understated reality. And even the let's talk about the, the lead actress Pauline yeah. Murray. She was married to a guy called Dr. Richard Jobson, who won an amateur film competition about mm-hmm. painting, because he was also a painter. He was a doctor in Wales. Um, so that's how Brownlow met him, because I think Dr Jobson came to London to collect his prize, and they were at this film event. Uh, and, and Kevin Brownlow really liked his film.
1: Yeah.
0: And told him about It Happened Here, and they were interested. And he actually went to Wales, and the doctor's wife was suggested. as, um, as an, yeah, yeah,
1: she, yeah, she, was,
0: she was actually Irish, and he wasn't sure at first. Anyway, eventually it all happened, yeah. And she's she's brilliant in it. Mm. Um, she was not happy with her acting, oh. especially when she filmed opposite one of the professionals. She wrote a letter to Brownlow saying, "Oh, I'm terrible. I'm terrible." Okay. But it's her understated naturalism yes. that makes the film to mm. some degree. Mm.
1: So she is a district nurse in this area of the West Country that's going to be um, evacuated. Evacuated, yeah. And so the Germans, all the occupying forces, are evacuating loads of people in um, trucks, in any sort of vehicle they can get. And there's a few stragglers, including Pauline Murray, mm. who don't fit on the last transport. Yeah, there's about what eight of them, including yeah.
0: a child. Yeah, a couple of and children, there's yeah. a sort
1: of air warden type police old yeah. policeman <laughs> who says, "Oh, don't worry, we'll send something.
0: Yeah, it'll be all right." You know, uh, these are all villagers, by the way. F- yeah. I think from where. Pauline and Dr Jobson lived, that's their home oh, right, village, so right. they all knew,
1: yeah. in
0: fact that's why in the film she's called Pauline, because they all knew her, they, so they just called, called her Pauline, Pauline on the screens <laughs> because she was going to be called Alison, I think, originally,
1: oh, right.
0: in the script,
1: Yeah.
0: by the way, he didn't have a script about halfway through the film, he had a plot <laughs> outline, he started filming, wasn't really sure it was going,
1: oh.
0: um, and eventually had to write a script when at one point someone offered some financing, but they needed a treatment, so that's what got him to write. eventually <laughs> oh, yeah. write some. Form yeah. of the
1: script. Yeah.
0: Anyway, sorry. We...
1: Yeah, yeah, so this small group um, trying to decide what to do. It's come to the end of the day, which is the deadline for mm. civilians being shot on site. So she says, Oh, come on, let's go back to my house and we'll wait. Because um, I don't think she quite believes that they will send a transport. No. They go back to her house and they're all trying not to bring too much attention to themselves. This is quite a good subtle moment, actually, I think. One of the children says, Oh, can I use the toilet? Pauline goes into the kitchen to fetch some food. She comes in, she thinks that the child's still upstairs and calls, oh, it's just the door on the left. Mm. And then she sees that the child is downstairs. So that's when they realise... she she hears someone upstairs. they realise someone is in her house, which can only mean it's a... uh, It's resistance, yeah. yeah. Partisans. (laughs) <laughs> and does oh come on let's go yeah. yeah it's quite good it's not shock or horror it's oh god let's just get out of this situation
0: yeah and then of course the germans return not to evacuation they are just coming yeah. back into the village to yeah. occupy it and the partisans open fire yeah and everyone but pauline is mm. killed yeah um mostly from partisan machine gun fire
1: yeah yeah she runs and Catches a train. Yeah, well, a
0: German hauls her into one of the trucks and gets her away, actually. Oh, right. So she gets to the station.
1: Right, oh, I see. Because it's quite a confused sequence. and I thought yeah. she ran to the train. Yeah. There
0: is a bit where a German pulls her and says, come on, and... Well, oh, that's good, because go. that
1: was one my one objection. I thought, if there's a train, why didn't they all get on that? Yeah. But obviously, yeah.
0: Why didn't they walk to that? Yeah. yeah. So she makes it to London. And again, that's another. Kevin Brownlow, he was young. He was an amateur... But he loved film, he'd studied film, Hmm. and although he learnt a lot during the filming Hmm. and made lots of mistakes, and that's the best way to learn, of course, (laughs) there's some fantastic shooting. So Hmm. uh, when she's on the train, you then see the camera, her eyes are closed, she's sleeping or remembering, and you you see the camera glide over the dead bodies back in the village, because that's when you realise they're all dead and she's sort of remembering Hmm. uh, what happened. But the way that's done as well is good. So, yes, she's in London and she's hoping to work as just a district nurse. Um, part of her backstory is that her husband was killed by the Germans.
1: Oh, yes, yeah. And
0: she actually says, you know, I just wanted to strangle every German that I mm. saw, but now I just want to um, get back to normal as quickly yeah. as possible.
1: And this is a, a theme that runs throughout the film. People are always saying, let's just get back to normal.
0: Yeah.
1: One, the main thing, I think, that the film is about is about how fascism drags you in and you become Mm -hmm. part of it without meaning to yeah and so what a lot of the english people or the occupied people (laughs) because she's irish yeah say is oh let's just get things things back to normal without worrying about the political side of it let's get back to law and order you know they just want to focus on getting a a livable daily
0: life yeah and then politically things can change
1: yes (laughs) where in fact by that point it's too late, you're embroiled in the whole political
0: yeah. system. I but... and this is the fascinating question, is that you know, in Britain we've got quite a smug attitude <laughs> to the fact... You know, we won the war, we were part of, part of the Allies that won the war, we beat Germany,
1: yeah.
0: um, we can look down on them as being weak-minded perhaps for yeah, falling yeah. for this Hitler chap, yeah. but we wouldn't do something like that. And I think that is part of the crux of this film is that you know, the title is It Happened Here.
1: Yes. It Can Happen
0: There, It Happened Here. In fact, there was a, a 1935 novel called It Can't Happen Here. <laughs> um, and I don't know if he was aware of that. I, I, I assume It Happened Here. It seems like a reference to that. Yeah. Brownlow's saying it, know, happen it Happened Here. It yeah. happened even in Britain. Yeah. If it can happen to the Germans, it can happen here. And I think, getting a bit political now, this is fascinating in today's age because look at someone like Donald Trump in the States, (sighs) who uh, I imagine him being unpresident. What a nightmare. He holds rallies, which is uh, an emotive word when you're talking about, Hitler. But they are are called rallies, of course, but you don't have that connotation so much these days. But when you're talking about Hitler and fascists and you mention the word rally, Mm. a different meaning comes into it. And there's been events recently where Muslims have turned up to protest and they've been heckled, shouted down and thrown out. And this is exactly what happened in the 1930s with the British Fascist Party. They'd have rallies under Oswald Mosley, who features in this film, uh, not an actual person, but as a backdrop. Uh, He looms large, let's say. And if people went along dissenters, they were thrown out, they are beaten down, they weren't allowed to talk. Trump probably sees himself as a great American freedom, blah, blah, blah. He's not. He's the same as the fascists. Yeah. Uh, it's the same thing happening. They have got extreme views. Yeah. And that's what this film...
1: And they were them up with by extreme methods. You think, it's,
0: <laughs> you think you're doing the right thing. So it happened to the Germans. They came out of the First World War. They felt they'd been hard done by, here comes this Hitler guy, let me have the authority
1: yeah, and I'll well, fix things. Fix
0: this, and yeah. he did start to fix things, obviously under a pretty horrible dictatorship. But still, yeah. um, for those who were the right... Race Mm. (laughs) things got better, yeah, but that's not justice. And and because
1: he basically, because the situation at the time was a great deal of social unrest and poverty and difficulty Mm. in people's day-to-day lives, and he was probably his main appeal to most of them was the same as in this film: get things back to normal, restore law and order. You think, yeah, just if we can get to that.
0: Then we can sort out the rest. Exactly. But by that point you've got a fascist government. I think that's why it's, it happened here is very relevant today when you look at someone like Donald Trump mm. who who thinks that he's doing a good thing and right thing and everyone's but when you look at them, they're hateful people. Um, they've got hateful ideas. But they're not noticing I don't think yeah. they no. if you look at someone like Britain First, for instance, they're all Oh, we're patriotic, great Britain, look, we won the war, blah 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 but actually they've more, got more in common with the Nazis who they, you know, are so proud we won the war against. Mm. Anyway, perhaps we're getting a bit too political. <laughs> yeah. But this is a very political film, right? Yes, yeah. That was interesting. That Kevin Brown I didn't want it to be a political film at first. It was just an idea oh, of really? exploring what would it yeah. be like. And he had actually had a, uh, a discussion with a young communist who started saying, you know, you can't make a film that has no opinion. You know, that's the whole thing about art, because Kevin Brown was saying, you know, no, I just want to be an observer. I just want to point the camera and do the facts. And he said, you can't. And Kevin Brown actually thought he had a point. Right. That art has to have a point of view Uh. of some kind.
1: Well, in in a way, that's what the film's about, isn't it? Um, (laughs) Saying you can't just live your life. At some point, you are going to have, to have to take a political point of view. Yes,
0: at first they came take for the... And I didn't do anything, and yeah. then they came for the... And I didn't do anything. <laughs> and then eventually they come for you, yes. Yeah. Yes, okay, so there's so much we could talk about on this subject because it permeates mm. the film, but yeah. let's move on with the plot Yeah. a bit. Um, so
1: Pauline yeah. gets to her, gets to London, where she's been given a...
0: um What's the word? Not a birth. Billet.
1: Billet, that's it, yeah, yeah. with her a friend who...
0: Who did make it up. Yeah, who
1: did make it and who obviously didn't witness the massacre that Pauline witnessed.
0: Yes. She so, hadn't heard what yeah. happened to the last few. I just want to say, while she's walking from the train station to her accommodation, mm. she walks through bombed-out London, which, yes. of course, there were a lot of bomb mm. sites still in London. Yeah, which gives it authenticity yes, again,
1: Yeah.
0: Um, there's a bit where she comes across a bit that's sectioned off with barbed wire an area for Jews, oh, so you've got that yeah, going on yeah, as well
1: Yeah. so she wants to set herself up as a district nurse, which is again getting things back to normal, she Yes. talks about getting the country back on its feet again, mm. but there's this organisation called Immediate Action Organisation which seems to be taking on people like nurses and training them to be pretty much like, I guess Hitler's brown shirts, it's basically a political Organization, but it's also organizes nurses and so on. Yeah, so it seems like the best way for her to make use of her talents would be to join this.
0: Well, she just wants, she doesn't want to be political, Mm. as you said, she just wants to be a nurse. But yeah, the immediate action group are the services arm of the fascists, right? Because the the Nazis are in control,
1: yeah.
0: And this was actually part of the plan of the real Operation Sea Lion, oh, right, was the Nazis would be in control but they used the British fascists to sort of run things on the local level. Right. And they actually wanted Oswald Mosley, who was the head of the British Union of Fascists, to, they had him in their sights to run things, pretty much, with his black shirts. He had the black shirts. And, uh, yeah, she doesn't want to join them, but she finds she's got no choice because they really want nurses. She's very useful with that skill.
1: She goes to an employment office where, of course, they're glad to find that she's got um, qualifications. She's put into an interview with an officer who gets... When she says, oh, I don't want to do anything political, he gets quite uh, riled up and gives her a yeah. lecture on, you know, this is the only way to be a nurse, this is the only way to get the country back on its feet and yeah. so on.
2: Now, you want to continue nursing. I take it that you have no objection to joining this organisation? Well, I'd prefer ordinary nursing. No such thing in London. You either nurse with us or you sit at home nursing an empty stomach no two ways about it. You can't object. Now, let's see if we can. No, you're clear. You're not a Jew, communist, anarchist, Freemason. You're definitely a. Now, there is a refresher course. You'll have to learn to look after yourself. I'm sorry. I don't want to join any organization. Look, this is not 1937. Things have changed. The point is this. The only way to combat the underground movement and all the other subversive elements that make our life a misery is to be better organized than they are. We just can't have lots of splendid people like you spread all over the country, working under their own steam. If we can get them all together, working towards one end, we'll soon get the old country back on its feet again. But- what if you don't agree with that one end? Look, let's get the country back on its feet again. Then we'll talk about that.
0: She walks in and there's a there's a portrait of Oswald Mosley and, and a portrait of Hitler on the wall. <laughs> she gives a sly glance yeah, to yeah. Brownlow and Mollo went to an actual rally by Oswald Mosley in the 50s, oh, right. or maybe early 60s, I don't know. He'd been, you know, before the war, he he set up the British Union of Fascists and did loads of rallies and had some success. But as Hitler's power grew and it became apparent yeah. what he was, they lost a fair amount of support. But they were still quite strong until the war started. Then then Mosley was interned, and then after the war, he actually moved to France and lived there. But he did try to make a political comeback in the fifties, I think, or the late fifties, and that's when Brownlow went to see him, mm-hmm. and he actually asked Mosley a question about something about, um, you know, his attitude towards Jews. Mm. And they were sort of shouted down, thinking about these recent Trump rallies again, similar sort of thing. Mm. So, yeah, that's interesting. The Nazis had a list of people who they wanted to help them in the event of a... Uh, right. who they would trust with positions of power, yeah, yeah. and also a list of people that they would exterminate.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so before the interview is over, the employment interview, um, <laughs> it seems very British, he says, oh, it's uh, it's uh, dinner time, why don't we go for a drink? Yes, Because <laughs> he's quite... This is the thing about a few of the official fascist figures in this. They're quite sort of jolly British people. Mm, mm. And, you know, obviously that was just their manner at the time.
0: Um, well, some some of the characters in those positions are real fascists who believe in the cause. Yeah. Others, I think like this recruitment officer, mm. he's certainly supporting it but I don't think he's an enthusiastic fascist. Yeah. But he's got the pictures on the wall. He th- he thinks it's the best way to get back yeah. to normal and is happy to engage in the politics of it. Pauline doesn't want to do the politics, just wants to stay out of mm. it but she finds she's got no choice.
1: Yeah. In fact, this is the, this moment coming up is the thing that actually makes her decide. Yeah. So they go she and this IA officer go to a pub. He's jostled by a drunk bloke who I think was wearing a... um, This drunk bloke seemed to be wearing a top which made me think of soldier's uniform.
0: Right. I think one of them had... had, The old man had some medals as well. Maybe from the First World War probably. So
1: I wonder if he's supposed to be like, you know, an ex-soldier defeated and so on who might have a grudge against the fascists anyway, but... What happens next is they get into a fight and suddenly there's a full-out riot going yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. So Pauline gets the police, mm-hmm. comes back, breaks it up, but now she's pretty much decided that the country needs law and order. Yeah. And it's... the only people offering law and order are the immediate action orders Sounds
0: like something out of 1984 as well, doesn't it? Yeah. Which, um... I thought that when I'm watching the film, and then later read an interview with Kevin Brown where he, he really liked those. 1984 was one of his favourite books no, 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 at no, the no. time.
1: So she goes to another interview now with a female recruitment officer, yes. and there's this brilliant point where Pauline Murray is explaining. She says, "I've decided that I'm going to be part of this organisation. I've decided this," and the woman says, "We don't accept your decisions. You accept ours." Yes. Does yeah. it so casually, but it's so much a sign of what you know what she's really dealing with.
0: What I like about the person um, who's playing that role is she's very British. Yeah. And when she says that line about you know you, you don't mm. decide. Yeah. It sounds slightly alien to her character. Yeah. And I think that's probably because she's amateur and saying this line, but actually, again, it's perfect for the film because there's this fascism being everyone's got to go along with it yes yeah um it's that sort of thing that you had in east germany where if you don't go along with it your neighbor's going to tell on you and you're going to be in trouble so whether you believe it or not if you want to survive you kind of have to go along with it or you take the other route of becoming a partisan resistance Mm. fighter yeah which is a possibility but a lot more dangerous of course and and probably most people you can't say this is the thing you can't say what you do in the situation until you've been in it yeah And everyone would like to think they'd be a hero and defy it. But the reality is 95% of people would go along with it for their own survival. There's various breaking points, of course. Yeah. Yeah. But I just think that's perfect when she says those lines. Hmm. There's this little sort of Britishness underneath it that feels a bit like she shouldn't be saying it yeah, I don't
1: know <laughs> yes yeah It's a good point
0: again it's the amateurishness of the film being perfect for this yeah for the context
1: yes yeah so what follows is Pauline's training uh, she, she said at some point I think it's almost immediately before this that she doesn't think it's going to be much it's going to be a military organisation but almost immediately you see it she's being trained in a military way yeah um, you know getting on an ambulance I think that's the funny thing isn't it Cause yeah. as soon as she
0: says that line or, or she worries that it's going to be too military oh, something right, like that it, yeah. there's this cup stamped down and this this
1: um army sergeant type yeah, yeah. <laughs> shouts
0: out get on the ambulance yeah. <laughs> and they've got to run
1: and there's quite a good sequence of I mean there's various bits of her being trained but you know like the marching sequences there's three of them one where she's sort of part of everyone else marching in yeah. the end she's at the front of the people marching right telling oh, them to march
0: i didn't notice that and also
1: firing a gun there's yeah one point where she's very unsure she fires it and looks away yeah and at the end a few sequences later she's
0: got six six shots <laughs> yes.
1: all on, all on target i'm yeah. sure
0: so yeah that's a good little scene and then at the end she's trained she's starting to get into service and there 's another great scene she gets on the bus yes, yeah, she 's all in her uniform, <laughs> yeah. which is black
1: yeah
0: it 's got the little immediate action flash, a sort of a lightning bolt, which is also <clears throat> the actual insignia of the the real British Union of fascists ah, right. so it 's totally authentic and she looks down at her lovely shiny shoes, yeah <laughs> and then she slowly looks up and sees the shoes of the women sitting opposite her, all yeah. all scuffed and yeah old. And they're looking at her in her uniform. She suddenly realises. Yeah,
1: They're looking at her with contempt yeah. because she's gone over. This is one of those points where she's, she's, one of them, she's yeah. sort of brought up against the consequences of her decision. Yeah, And the great thing about this film is at every point you can see that she's making a reasonable decision. Yeah. <laughs> yes. But she is slowly drawn into the wrong overall decision. Well, that's a good,
0: very good point. But this yeah.
1: brings, I mean, this is one of these things where it's difficult to imagine how he, he could have got people to act it so well because yeah, yeah. the look is so it's not a line it's just a look mm. of contempt and yeah. it's so british <laughs> you <Yeah. laughs> um that sort of contempt with that yeah but someone spills getting off the bus someone spills something on her yeah her, and she's annoyed she's trying to wipe it off and someone gives her something to wipe her it off with which is the first thing anyone has done on the bus which is nice to her <laughs> And she realises what they've given her is a copy of the fascist newspaper, (laughs) which I think is a brilliant... You know, she thinks, is that a dig? Yeah. I think it's brilliant. Perfect. But she's on her way to visit an old friend. That's right. Dr. Fletcher. Yes. Who has been ousted from his house. He's now in the basement of what was his
0: house. Yeah, his house is occupied by a young, smart, slick chap in a fascist's uniform. Yes. Who says, oh, you know, yes, he's downstairs and... He seems to be quite nice. In fact, Doctor Spectre even says he's a nice chap.
1: (laughs) I mean, as we know that they're desperate for nurses, presumably they're also desperate for doctors, so Mm. it seems quite significant that he's being treated badly, considering he's a
0: doctor. He's still practising, but, but, yeah, down in the basement.
1: So, I mean, there's a a sort sequence of a few scenes with him, and that's really what the main thrust of the film is for the next few, even though we get some... I mean, interspersed in the next bit, there's some talks from genuine fascists. Can I just talk
0: about Dr. Fletcher a minute? He was a professional actor, Mm. Sebastian Shaw.
1: I wondered, because when you said that there were professional actors, he was the one I thought of. Yeah,
0: and it was (coughs) the scenes with him that Pauline suddenly lost some of her confidence and said, oh, I look terrible in front of him. And the person playing his wife, Fiona Leland, who I don't think was a professional actor. Um, Sebastian Mm. Shaw, he was very... Did very well in films before the war right uh, he was a young good looking sort of leading man type mm. earning quite a lot of money from his films then the war happened he joined the RAF and when the war ended and he got back he kind of had to start his career again oh right but he was still you know mm. had a career as an actor yeah, and yeah. did very well and in fact when Brown and Mollo were thinking you know who can we get to play the doctor so it would be great if we could get a professional actor and they opened up Spotlight And it opened up at Sebastian Shaw's page and they said, oh, if only we could get someone like him. And Andrew Moller said, well, why don't we? And Kevin Brown and they said, no, we can't. We can't. He said, yeah, do it. So they phoned up his agent and he agreed to do it for a nominal fee. Oh, right. Now, Sebastian Shaw's later career is very interesting because he played the unmasked Darth Vader in Return of the Jedi. Really? If you look at his eyes, knowing that, when you look (laughs) at him, you'll recognise him. Oh, wow. His eyes, he's the same guy. And he said he got more fan mail for that <laughs> part than in anything else he'd done in his career. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was also... He started his career playing in a 1929 play in New York called Rope's End, which was made into Rope by oh, right. uh, Alfred Hitchcock. Yeah. So Sebastian Shaw was hmm. the professional actor of the... Oh, right. There were a couple of other actors, you know, yeah. career actors as well, um, who I don't really know so well. Yeah. But just... Talking about Star Wars. Yeah. <laughs> um, they eventually got a cinematographer called Peter Shushitsky. I'll say that carefully. <laughs> um, I'm probably mispronouncing it. Whose father was a cinematographer as well. Uh, worked on a lot of films. His father was, I think, called Wolfgang Shushitsky. And he worked on the, a lot of films. But what of interest to us, perhaps, is The Vengeance of She, Hammer's uh, sort of sequel, sequel I mean, yeah. to their 1965 version of She with mm. Ursula Andrus. Yeah. And he also... Um, worked on Get Carter. Oh right, his son Peter. Mm. This was kind of his uh, first film, really, mm. right. working in that capacity. Uh, he later worked on the Rocky Horror Picture Show, Krull, and was David Cronenberg's oh. um, mm. main cameraman for his later career. Oh right, from sort of nineteen eighties onwards. Mm. But his big one was The Empire Strikes Back. You oh see it right, on The uh, Empire Strikes Back. Wow. So some interesting people. Mm.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, later on, when Pauline visits the Doctor. She visits them. And she's still got her coat on so they don't see that she's in the uniform yes. of an immediate action yeah. which the doctor immediately says well actually it's in a later scene but he says "Oh, what's that group I'm skipping a head here what's that group they sound something like a laxative yeah, immediate action. <laughs> being a doctor you yeah, probably yeah. have that yeah. and then just as she's taking her coat off yeah. this is the second scene with them yeah. and he sees their um, yeah. I well, think that it's uniform. done
1: really well <clears throat> first she visits them and she brings them some packages of food yeah which might indicate to them that she's, you know, slightly doing better off politically than them.
0: Yeah. She said, then she's
1: just going to visit or them maybe again. She's just
0: come from the country, so they oh, might yeah, think it's, true, yeah. it's that and be quite innocent about it.
1: So she visits again, and uh, the doctor immediately gets her to help him do up a bed. Yeah. So she's still and got her packing. coat on. They've
0: got Yeah. Quite, they're packing, aren't they? It seems.
1: Um, and they're obviously going to ask her something, and they're assuming, obviously, because they they're saying, "Oh, we need your help," because mm. she's a nurse. And it turns out that they've got a partisan who is ill, and English, they're trying to possibly. yeah they're trying to care for him obviously, um, mm. but they're also trying to keep him quiet. And they're going to ask for her help, yeah, because they know her. They're pretty sure that she wouldn't be a fascist, yeah. And they just start <laughs> to ask her when she takes off her coat. I think it's done really well, yeah.
0: yeah. And, and they see
1: this... the flash on her arm. Yeah. Mm. Mm.
0: His face falls, doesn't it? He goes, oh. Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> it's a friend of theirs, and he's just revealed... Well, he hasn't told her about yeah. the partisan they're hiding, Yeah, but he's revealed his political Yeah, because he's been
1: bad-mouthing the fascists.
0: Yeah. Not that she's against that, because yeah. he did that earlier as well.
1: But significantly, she doesn't say, I would never tell. No. Because what no, happens she next
0: is that the bloke... She, she tries to persuade them to mm-hmm. hand him in.
1: Yeah, the partisan is too ill and he calls out because he's in a fever. And she says to them... So she, she finds out they've got a partisan there. She says, oh, do you know what a penalty is for harbouring a partisan? She doesn't say, I would never tell. Which she, I think, you know, if that was me, I'd say, you know, don't worry, I'm not going to tell. But, you know... Yeah. <laughs> but she does try and help.
0: Yes, to get some morph- morphia. Yeah. yeah she, That's also the bit where the Doctor talks about fascism. Yeah. She's saying... That's a really interesting bit and another... Aspect of the film, he says that, you know, the Nazis are terrible. She says, yes, you know, I know the Nazis are terrible, but don't whitewash the partisans. Yes. They killed all my friends. So, yes, the Nazis are bad. She's saying the partisans are just as bad. Yeah. That's not the solution necessarily. He then says, well, perhaps to fight fascism you need a bit of fascism yeah he says once fascism surfaces in us it's very difficult to get rid of it yeah and that's that's what you said earlier
1: well he he says it's like a disease yeah once a disease is taking place you've got to attack it
0: yeah yeah he talks about inoculation interestingly because where you use part of the disease to fight that disease yes yeah Uh, we have skipped ahead a bit there and i I want to go back to a bit where i think it's possibly before she visits the doctor It might be just after, where they go to the cinema and they see Mirror on the World newsreel. In fact, they're going to see a film. They go to the Astoria. Right. And it says Hans Albers in Answer Yes Tomorrow. And Answer Yes Tomorrow I think is a fictitious right. thing. I couldn't find anything about that. Hans Albers was a very famous he was the biggest film star in Germany during the war.
1: Oh right.
0: He wasn't really a Nazi himself, he was one of those get by mm. kind of people. He actually had a Jewish girlfriend who escaped to Britain and they were reunited after the war. Oh, right. But he was a massive star. They sort of I think they said he was equivalent to sort of Germany's John Wayne sort of yeah. thing. So anyway, they're going to see this film, but there's a probably one of the centrepieces of of It Happened Here is the newsreel. Right. Mirror on the world. And Kevin Brown has done completely perfect newsreel style. Mm-hmm. There's jump cuts, the camera moves like it, and he actually got a famous wartime BBC newsreel narrator to do the narration, so mm-hmm. that's totally authentic <coughs> as well. Because so I did hear that there is no stock footage used in this. Yeah. Yeah, which and is it amazing. it seems incredible. <laughs> During the newsreel, there's a bit where he says, this is the only known footage of the Christmas truce football game yes, in World War One," yeah. And of course... He did it himself. Yeah. And a BBC law manager lent him a 1922 hand-cranked camera. Oh,
1: really? And so he
0: used an actual, <laughs> well, okay, a bit later than the First World War, but yeah. the camera they used at the time to film that. So you get the hand-cranked feel, and that's why it looks so authentic. Yes. He changed the camera, I mean, through a stroke of luck, and he want, again, he wanted the faces to be right. So they were wearing false moustaches, mm. they had authentic uniforms. Yeah. The weather when they filmed it was atrocious. <laughs> he couldn't actually see through his glasses or the viewfinder of the camera, right. um, and just p- sort of pointed it in the right direction. Yeah. <laughs> but again, probably lending to the authenticity, yes, yeah. all the soldiers had the Queen Mary gift tins that were given to all soldiers in the First World War. Oh, you right. didn't see them in the film, yeah, but it was yeah. part of. Uh, they all felt as though they'd got this Christmas wow. gift. Yeah, uh, just. But that whole newsreel <laughs> is brilliant, and mm. it explains. its... Pure propaganda from the German point of view explains how you know the British and the Germans were brothers, which yeah. is something that Hitler actually thought. Mm. He was very disappointed that Britain <laughs> yes. came to the war against him, <laughs> and yeah, so they point to this football match on the Flanders about the true relationship coming through yeah. there then they blame the Jews for ruining everything yeah. and in fact I think they actually say the second world war the bombing that was the fruits of Jewish control is the <laughs> phrase I think they use yeah. complete propaganda but that explains and now we're brothers again and there's all the fascist party you know, the immediate action and the Germans marching together yeah. but it's a, the, it's a brilliant yeah. sequence it's absolutely brilliant because that's where you get a lot of the Germans in London there's many Medleys are those... Mm. Not medleys, what are they called? Montages. <laughs> montages of those scenes earlier as well. And they're brilliant. You get Nazis walking out of the Midland Bank.
1: Yes. Um, they're <laughs> on
0: embankment looking at the girls as they walk by yeah. with the Houses of Parliament in the background. They're in Trafalgar Square getting cups of coffee from a mobile tea van. Yeah. And the people around them, they're buying, they're getting their... Oh, there's, there's an interesting scene where what looks like some... I don't know what they are, Mongolian troops? Yes, yeah. they, Whatever they are, they're getting their shoes shined. Yeah. And the shoe shiner is obviously an authentic London shoe shiner of the period. Yeah. And also a tea, a coffee seller or tea seller.
1: Yeah.
0: And there's these people in German uniforms buying stuff from yeah. them. And they're not actors, they yeah.
1: this made me think of some... I mean, this was... 19, the film is 1964, isn't it? Yeah,
0: that's when it ended, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's when it came out, anyway.
1: Also in 19. Sixty-four or 5 was, as is slightly parallel, Doctor Who and the Dalek Invasion of Earth. Oh, right. And yeah. the famous scene on that is, of course, the Daleks coming across London Bridge, or one of the bridges in London, yes. outside the Houses of Parliament, anyway. And that made me think that it's quite characteristic of British Westminster films. Bridge problem. Westminster <laughs> British <laughs> films about invasions, whether from alien invasions or German invasions, to have them parading around in recognisable landmarks. Yeah, yeah. Whereas in American films, if you think of the sort of uh, alien invasion films of America, they tend to have them over their cities, blowing up their (laughs) main landmarks. That seems to be the thing, that Americans make them think that's an invasion. Whereas British, it's actually seeing someone walking down right. a recognisable
0: street. Yeah, that's interesting. Yes. So,
1: but I, I, the Daleks thing is, because, of course, Daleks are basically Nazis. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so it shows that this sort of imagery was floating around in other people's heads, um, trying to get itself known. You know? Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> anyway, so, yes, yeah, so you were talking about some of the there's three or four scenes where fascists make speeches to yeah, the it's... immediate action recruits. Yeah. And there's an early one with a very posh, accented guy yes. talking about national socialism. It's
1: a new philosophy.
0: Yeah, and he's, he's pretty good, actually. And he was, he was actually a teacher, Miles Halliwell, hmm. and he was the lead in Kevin Brano's other film, they made in the 70s, when Stanley. Oh, right. Um, which I think was set during the Civil War or something, or just after it. Mm. The English Civil War. Now, other cast members who did some of those speeches were genuine fascists. Yes. And one of the key scenes in the film, another key scene, I keep saying is <laughs> a key scene, is where they're in a sort of a lounge tea room. Yeah. And there's two fascists and the, there's various recruits and they're asking them questions about yeah. fascism yeah. and they're sounding off. And it's very authentic, the reason being because the two people who are answering the questions. And the first time I saw this, I thought, oh, they're good. good. <laughs> <laughs> the second time, I knew that they were actual fascists. They, yeah. were, they believed what they were saying. This was a totally natural scene. They were asked questions. They answered what they believed. Yeah. And it sends a chill up your spine yeah. because it's real. And this was a problem later for Kevin Brownlow and Andrew Mollo, because the film eventually had some success and got picked up by United Artists for distribution. But they eventually decided that that scene had to go because really? there were a lot of claims of anti-Semitism,
1: yeah. saying
0: you're promoting Nazism, you're anti-Semitic. Kevin Brown couldn't believe it because he said, no, these people are condemning themselves. <laughs> yes. by what They say, can't you see that? Yeah. And he was dumbfounded that people couldn't see that that they thought it was promoting it it's that thing again where people get mixed up between commenting on something rather than proposing it I mean and I think you have to be it takes a slight uh, intellectual dimness not necessarily non-intelligent people at all but to not uh, not, maybe not recognise it but to not allow that Mm. I think you've got to allow these things to be said and to have them coming from actual fascists most people see that and are horrified by it because I kind of think generally people are good. Yeah. It's very difficult. You hear of people doing bad things and you think, well, maybe there was this circumstance or maybe we're not quite getting the truth. Then you see people saying things like, if I had a child who was deformed in some way, yeah. um, yes, I'd euthanize it. Yeah. You know, Absolutely, cut it out. Dead meat, he says. Yeah. This is actual words. Or put the Jews on Madagascar, which was the sort of <laughs> 1950s version of, you know, he probably. I mean, his name was Frank Bennett, the one with the moustache, who yeah. actually looked a bit like Hitler, didn't he? <laughs> um, and he was a, he was a Nazi, an a- actual Nazi, living in the nineteen fifties, sixties Britain. Right. Nice. So by then it was you know, it wasn't concentration camps for the Jews, it was put them on Madagascar. He's asked what if you're an eight Jewish? And he said, Well I'd probably cut my neck to get that blood out. Yes. I mean that's real yeah. and so you, you might think good of people but to see the genuine thing makes you realise how serious they are and what a danger it is so yeah. I, that's why I think that seems important and it was absolutely a mistake for yeah. Jewish groups and other people who were very uncomfortable with it and rightly so Yeah. but to cut it out is the wrong thing censorship yes. is not the answer yeah. and thankfully now it's back in the film and you can, you can be shocked by it yeah
2: but- I'd be very interested to know your reaction to euthanasia. It's a surgical operation, getting rid of useless matter, useless tissue. Any doctor does it ten times a day, if it's necessary. Um, if you had a small child who contracted some disease that left him paralysed, as well he might, would he then be just waste tissue to be got rid of? Exactly. Certainly. No, uh... No member is in the position of privilege to protect a useless person. A person is useless because he's useless, not because he happens to be related to somebody who's useful. Without the existence of such a law, I would want to take that law into my
0: own hands anyway. But a fantastic scene Mm. because of its genuineness. And this Frank Bennett chap gets a scene later where he's talking at at the funeral. And that's where you're thinking, goodness me, this is Hitler. He's shouting. Yes. And again, the first time I saw it, I thought, wow, great acting. And then when you see it and know that he's a real Nazi and he believes what he's saying, he's getting the chance to do his Hitler speech. Yes. (laughs) Um, The way Kevin Brownlow met him was was Frank Bennett borrowed a Nazi flag from Andrew Mollo, who was known as a collector. Right. right. And he was using it for a centrepiece of a party. So Kevin Brown and Andrew Mollo were invited to the party because of that connection <laughs> went... And all these fascists started turning up, and they realised it wasn't a fancy dress or anything. It was a party of real fascists. That's how they got involved in the film, because they thought, wow, these views are incredible.
1: Yeah.
0: We've got to have it in the film. Mm. So there was him. And it's interesting, isn't it? There's the guy with the beard, is the other bloke talking. Yeah. He's even more unnerving, because... Whereas Frank Bennett is quite forthright in his views. Yeah. The other guy's very English and sort of, well, you see, you know, I mean, I, yeah, I would absolutely uh, kill yeah, my he, own child. His tone, his
1: tone <laughs> is utterly reasonable, whereas what he's saying is... Yeah. Just... so,
0: wow. <laughs> I think
1: the whole thing about that is that usually we watch a film we don't engage our brains (laughs) and everything just washes over you and this is one of those moments where you suddenly wake up thinking what am I listening to (laughs) and if you use your brain you think what are these characters saying not what are the films saying Mm. what are these characters saying and then you judge them yeah judge them not the film but um, it's too easy to just disengage your brain yeah
0: At the uh, funeral, which I think is a brilliant scene just because of that speech he makes and knowing mm. it's, he's real, mm. uh, apparently one of the extras found it too uncomfortable, took off his uniform and yeah. ran off. <laughs> yeah. But they sing a song at the end mm. in English, but that was the Horst Vessel, which was the Nazi Party anthem. Oh, yeah. But they translated it into English for this oh, yeah. scene. Yes. And an, an interesting thing mm. is, years later, Kevin Barano got contacted and told that that song was still in copyright. <laughs> And he said, but the guy who wrote it is dead. He actually got shot. He got assassinated uh, during the war. And he had to pay something like 360 quid or something. So oh. years later, he had to pay so another bit of bad luck. He oh, yeah. just... He
1: <laughs> Probably to the, to the fascist party as well.
0: <laughs> oh, no, I don't know. Uh, yeah. Oh, an odd one to collect money on.
1: Yes.
0: So let's move on with the plot a bit. Yeah.
1: She mm. tries to get some morphia to yeah. help this partisan. Yeah. She goes to someone who's been her friend so far. Yeah. Seems a bit simple, but it's incredibly friend. simple.
0: Because she says, "Don't tell anyone," and she gets up and goes and tells her boss that someone needs some morphia. Yeah, <laughs> and, and
1: she, and she, she creeps she says, out. Who is it? Why does they need it? I don't know. I don't know. But <laughs> basically, her goose is cooked. You know, yeah. It shows, and uh, it comes on the line later, saying the party demands your loyalty, and that's above your loyalty to friends. Yeah, and this this is a sign of that. You know, you can't trust anyone. Mm it's only the party you can trust as it were
0: so I think and then there's a funeral and then she goes to visit her doctor friend and discovers slightly late that they've they are being taken away yeah. by a uh, nun. She
1: says she tried to get there before the funeral, yeah. but she can't. So if she had, she would have been caught there.
0: Yes, that's true. So in a way, she's saved by circumstances. Yeah. But also, I imagine they, the doctor and his family may have assumed that she was the one who on them.
1: Yes. When actually, it was thing.
0: almost certainly the neighbour, because we see yes. him being suspicious. So they get taken away to some unknown yeah. fate.
1: She's summoned before an IAO officer. Yep who says, basically, because you trained as a nurse, that's the only thing that's valuable about you now, because you've betrayed. Mm. You've betrayed the party, you've betrayed the country, the English people. doesn't matter about your friends, you've betrayed uh, us. So the only thing that's uh, worthwhile about her now is her training, so they're going to use that. Yeah. And she's going to be transferred to a rehabilitation centre. Yeah. <laughs> Which, as soon as hearing that, I thought, oh, I know what that's going to be. <laughs> but, of course, she doesn't know that, because she
0: hasn't been through the... Uh, well, she gets sent to this beautiful idyllic countryside hospital Mm. and it is beautiful there's birds singing it's quiet it seems quite nice actually and the nurses are there and she is able to get out of the
1: yeah, the you old uniform—a a
0: black uniform—and into a, a regular nurse's uniform. Yeah, she's given a room. She's—I
1: uh, always think—as long as your room's all right, everything's going to be all yeah. right. Which is yeah. one of those moments you think, <clears throat> "Oh no, what's
0: coming?" She's picked up from the station by the caretaker of the hospital. Yeah. this old bloke uh, who was played by an actor, but he couldn't drive, and they actually taught him to drive that morning. <laughs> <God>. <laughs> <laughs> so at the hospital, their first thing is they've got a load of Polish workers coming in who have got TB. Yeah. And as far as she knows, they're going to be caring for them. Yeah. She Um, does
1: say, Where are the thermometers? Yeah. Which is, you know, they're making up beds. And you say, Oh, don't worry about that. No, the other nurse first asks, Have you been told everything about this place? And she says, Oh, most of it. Then she says, where are the thermometers? And the other nurse says, oh, you haven't been told everything yeah, about this place. don't worry. Don't <laughs> worry about it. Yeah. So
0: in come these poles, you know, maybe about 12, 15, including a, a young boy. And they're told to get out of their clothes into their pyjamas. Yeah. Interestingly, striped pyjamas that are slightly reminiscent of yeah. the <laughs> concentration camp uniforms. And perhaps a sign is that she's told to get a big basket to put all the clothes in. So mm. they're not kept by their bed. They're not kept separate. They're all put in a big Basket. Yeah. So the clues are mounting up. Yeah. And then they're told they're going to be inoculated against Infectious disease. Infectious diseases. Infectious yeah. diseases. There's one of the doctors there who's obviously German, isn't he? Yeah. Who well, seems to have yeah. what well, I think is a German accent. He's not the head, he's the assistant. Mm. It turns out the next morning she, well, she's... Gone. I
1: think it's significant that yeah. they, they inoculate, inoculate, quotes there. Some of the... I, mean, I was going to call them prisoners, but they're not. The, the, the workers. The yeah, the yeah. workers. And then our heroine herself has to continue... So she,
0: she does some of the injections. Including the boy. Yes. There's a, there's a nice scene, <laughs> nice, where the matron is rummaging through the store and finds a couple of teddies. Yeah. And, uh, one of them's a golly walk. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> And gives them to the, the, little the, boy. the little boy to play with. Yeah, just to uh, comfort him. Yeah. You, you're watching this slightly unnerved, thinking, yeah. is this what I think it is? Yeah. So the
1: key um, thing is she has actually given this injection to some of the people mm. there.
0: And another scene that, again, is, is slightly, oh, my God, is where one of the poles, the clothes are being taken away he says wait wait and he's, he's hidden a piece of bread that he's yeah. put under his pillow yeah at the end of that she's whacked
1: she goes to bed um, wakes up the next morning a little bit late and thinks oh I better get onto the ward quickly goes there all the beds are empty mm-hmm. she walks around she can't find anyone She sees some people in distance who've been working in the ground, so she Mm. follows them, walks along until she finds 12 freshly dug graves, and then she realises just what's been going
0: on. This mirrors an actual Nazi early Nazi policy from the 30s which became known as the Action T4 program oh, right. where they would start to get rid of the quotes undesirables yeah. and they started with children <coughs> they would euthanize children who had something wrong with them whether they were disabled or, or had mental problems of some mm. kind it was called the Action T4 program and it was carried out in hospitals and they would do exactly as they did here there was even Kevin Brown had read that the nurses were really kind to mm. the patient's They would even give the children toys. But, of course, what they were doing was killing them. And throughout, this eventually spread to adults. Mm. And, of course, these are the first step towards getting bold enough to have concentration camps where you're just killing on a mass industrial scale. But 70,000 people were killed through this Action T4 program, euthanized. There were German doctors who managed to save people. So it was, you know, as much as you can do under a system where you don't want your family... (laughs) shots or whatever. But some of the phrases they use, because she's again on the train, she complains Mm, about this. Yes. She obviously refuses to do it. Yeah. And you see she's on the train, and then again there's a flashback where all the staff are making excuses for it. Yeah.
2: How do you think I feel? Do you think I like it here? What's the alternative? I can't leave, I've no other job to go to. And if we refuse to carry on, they'd send us all to concentration camps. Either way, they're going to die. Isn't it kinder for them to die this way? You see, we've always been a nursing home. We've always treated TB cases. So the authorities find it convenient that we should appear to carry on as before. The patients, the incurable ones, have to go. So we just do our best to see them through their last hours as humanely as possible. And why did you join that organisation in the first place? When you joined that, you accepted National Socialism. And you accepted every method it employs to achieve its aims... You can't ignore the basic issue. We're involved in a great cleansing operation, wiping out disease, medically, political, racial. We don't enjoy this charade any more than you do, but we find that kindliness allays suspicion, makes disposal easier. You see, we are like soldiers at the front. They can't betray their country by deserting their post, and nor can we.
0: I think some of these phrases from earlier, but from the fascists talking, hmm. because that one is asked the question about euthanasia, would you euthanasia your own kid if there was something mm. wrong with it? And he says, absolutely, without yeah. a doubt. It's useless meat. Other things that are used are human dross or yeah. passengers. Oh, useless eaters. Yeah, I They're that useless was an... eaters. Yeah, that's a... Oh, God. So, yeah, she's handcuffed to a Nazi officer, mm. taken on a train, and then... And this, the... Is
1: the, this is the low point in her story, really, where she she started... Just wanting to be a nurse, just wanting to get by. Mm. Gets, you know, so she joins the right. uh, IAF so, yeah. and suddenly she is one of the murderers. You mm. know? She didn't want to be yeah, and at no right. point did she decide to be, but she is.
0: Yeah, uh, her get out is is sort of, thankfully, <laughs> yeah. the train is ambushed by partisans. So yeah. she ends up as a prisoner Yeah, along with some of the Germans. But they need nurses as well, yes. <laughs> thankfully, so...
1: And she takes off her armband and goes to just help. I mean, all the way through the film, she you know she just wants to use her skill to help people. Mm. But because she didn't take a definite political stance, I suppose that's the point. There's
0: a scene where she's in the tea rooms back in London and she wants just wants to read a magazine and every magazine is military and then she finally finds one that looks like a woman's magazine. She yeah. opens up and it's got... Yeah, you know, again hitler in and yeah. stuff the radio is just military yes. news military <laughs> speeches, marching music her friend asks to turn it off or no to change the channel but gets put back on
1: yeah
0: and then when she's looking after the partisans in hospital again the partisans have got their own again it's the radio it's propaganda yes it's how brilliantly they're doing yeah. you can't escape it and the film ends with a load of german prisoners being taken to a field and shot it's basically as it started the yeah. germans uh killing a load of villagers which yes. is shocking because yes. that's a very early scene mm. including children and this goes back to pauline's phrase don't white wash the partisans mm. they're doing the same they're killing yeah because the germans come out of the village under a white flag mm. so you know the geneva convention if well i guess <laughs> it never got made but
1: oh yes um, was, yeah.
0: The, yeah there isn't one but yeah. the the sort of looking after prisoners of war yeah didn't happen obviously that's the last scene, isn't it?
1: Well, it's an excellent film, I think.
0: Yeah. It was criticised for being anti-Semitic. Other people hated the fact, saying that the British people...
1: Would never do it. ...would never,
0: <laughs> never do that collaboration. Mm-hmm. I think, as we said, that's the point of the film. Yeah. It happened there, it can happen here. It got made thanks to the director, Tony Richardson. I think oh, it was Tony Richardson. Right, yeah. Directed Tom Jones. He was, right, and, yeah. And Richard... Andrew Mollo was working for a film company and was working on Tom Jones... Uh, He later went on to become a kind of historical... Advisor right. specialising uniforms and worked on The Eagles Landed, which we're going to be talking about, ah, right. which has parallels to this film in a way in which she got mm. the Nazis in the English yes, setting. Yeah. But perhaps we'll talk about that more with The Eagles Landed. Andrew Mollo was also an advisor on The Pianist Downfall, which we're also going to be talking about. Oh right, and also Doctor Javago.
1: Yes, with David Lean. Yes,
0: and he was a designer. He designed the whole first series of Sharp and some of Hornblower, oh, right. and wrote several books on military uniforms. But another connection. Oh yeah, I was saying Tony Richardson directed of Tom Jones, so I think he won an Oscar for that. Right. He gave them something like three thousand pounds
1: mm. which
0: suddenly made sure they could finish the film. Yeah. Another guy who helped was some small director called Stanley Kubrick <laughs> really? who they met who Kevin Brown met at a film event. Yeah. And he gave them his spare stock from Doctor Strangelove. sort of the end the cut-offs and things so he had some nice 35mm film film he could shoot with (laughs) (laughs) and another person who interestingly saw the film was Lenny Reifenstahl oh right yeah the Nazi filmmaker but she couldn't watch it she started watching it and it was too real Mm. she said she saw Kevin Brown was quite disappointed that she didn't watch the whole film Mm. (laughs) but it's an interesting concept what would have happened if
1: Mm. the
0: Germans had won the war Mm. because you know it could have happened yeah have you ever read Fatherland by Robert Harris? Yes. Yeah, that's... Uh, yeah. It doesn't take place in England, it takes place in Germany. Mm. But it's, again, that, that thinking. And was... Amazon Television did a series recently called The Man in the Castle*?
1: Yeah, based on Philip K. Dick book. Right. Um, yeah, I've read the book. It's my favourite of his.
0: So, yeah, there were people around yeah. that helped to make it happen. Certainly a bit of luck... A lot of bad luck. On like the second day of filming, his camera got stolen. He left oh, uh, Kevin Brownlow's camera. It was left in a car. And yeah. The guy who was supposed to be guarding the car wandered off, and it got stolen. Uh, another time, a camera fell over. The scene that they filmed in the billet, where the two women are talking yes, about yeah. what happened, was apparently a nightmare to film. A Salvation <laughs> Army band struck up two streets oh. away. It was baking, but they had to have all the windows closed because children were playing, dogs were barking. The camera was really noisy and was being picked up by the sound recordist. They were all tired. The camera kept breaking down. Oh, dear. <laughs> so just a little simple scene like that yeah. was a, a nightmare to get through.
1: That's the thing if you're working on zero budget. Yeah. I read that the budget was £7,000 in right. the end, yeah. which is amazing.
0: What they yeah, I think... Uh, an amazing film with some really interesting yeah. themes
1: very different from the others because uh, actually this is the thing I wanted to say of course this is the first film I think we've had which has had a female protagonist oh interesting yeah. yes yeah um, good point shows a very different side of the war I mean it's the domestic side resistance side rather than yeah. the he- heroic men going yeah. out there and blowing up a bridge yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> but I think the questions it asks are very interesting from an historical point of view mm. you know thinking that it couldn't happen to us yeah. of course it could um, you question your own
1: yeah what would i do what would
0: you do well because yeah. you don't know you'd like no. to think what you do but also for current times i think it's yeah. very interesting when you look yes. at the world now and there's a rise of the right
1: yeah um it's, it's human structures. nature to think it can't happen here yeah isn't it and i think
0: that's the warning <laughs> yeah. people like donald trump people like the the you know people like the British National Party, I think, are pretty much dead in the water, but Britain first. I know they're a laughing stock, but still, mm-hmm. that's how some of these things start. Yeah. If it gets momentum going, you can suddenly, exactly as you said, little steps that you don't think are too bad, and before you know it, you're yeah. injecting the arms of, um, <laughs> you know, yeah. goodness knows what a horrific thought. Yeah. Okay, so I think the next film we're doing... We're going to take a break from the Second World War, or sort of 20th century yeah. wars, and we're going to be looking at Zulu, Zulu. going into the 19th century, yeah.
1: yeah,
0: which will be very interesting to have yes. that yeah. different view. So thank you very much for listening to our podcast about It Happened Here. I hope if you haven't seen the film, well, we've, uh, <laughs> you certainly know about it now, yeah. but please go and see the film. I it's think it's well fantastic. Yeah. Um, Kevin Brownlow lost the rights, United yeah. Artists, and they wouldn't give them back. It was not their policy. <laughs> And he tried several times over the years, until eventually a woman took over, well, it was the chair. I don't know what her position was, who he was friendly with. Yeah. And she made it happen. He got his rights back. Oh, good. And that's why now there is a DVD with that, with that scene yeah. of the two fascists oh, talking right. back in. Oh. So he got his rights back. And Kevin Barron's got his own company called PhotoPlay, who produce all these things. And they his restored version of silent films they show them at film festivals so that's what he does now
1: yeah
0: if you ever get the chance to see something kevin brown has done read one of his books i also read his book on david lean he wrote biography on david lean which i referenced for our podcast on um, lawrence of of arabia (laughs) very good book he's a brilliant writer Mm. any of those books i highly recommend them um I haven't seen Win Stanley
1: hmm. um
0: I'm I'm curious to see that actually
1: yeah
0: it's not an era I'm as interested in the English Civil War but I have actually become more interested in it recently for various reasons uh, I had a job recently about the Great Fire of London <laughs> and so I read about that and got completely enthralled in it and also my next comic uh, sir Julius Chancer has got a big section rooted in the English Civil War right. so I might I might check out that film as well but if you ever get a chance to see him talk if you ever get a chance to see some of his Restoration Silent films and he, he chooses good quality ones I highly recommend it
1: mm.
0: but until then uh, we'll sign off hopefully yes. the next War films podcast won't be too long and thank you very much for listening thank you goodbye